Good morning, Summit Church. It's week two of our present series where we are talking about what it means to really know God. And we are studying the last half of the book of Exodus. We've got a great chapters to study this morning. So at all of our campuses, I invite you to open your Bible there and let me get right into it and just read the chapter to you. Let me, um, let me talk to God for just a minute. Father, we, um, we pray that you would surround us this morning with your presence. Lord, so that as we open your word, Lord, we would read it together with the Spirit of God. Father, how hypocritical to talk about your presence and to have none of it with us. So we pray that in your grace you would give it to us in the Holy Spirit. And Father, we pray that we would be a place not so much of doing, but of knowing and seeing. And then our doing would be a response to what we have seen and known. So God, help us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Exodus chapter 33, verse 1. Let me read it uh, as if you have it in your Bible, or if not, I'll put it on the screen here for you. The Lord said to Moses, Depart and go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and the Uptites. Those are the Baptists, okay? <laughs> Verse 3, go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. Now when the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned. And Moses said to God, if your presence will not go with me, verse 15, do not bring us up from here. Verse 16, for how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going up with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? Verse 17, and the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, verse 18, please show me your glory. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said to Moses, you cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Let me review really quickly for those of you with a, a short-term memory issue, or maybe just weren't here last week, but God's whole point in the Exodus was calling people out to know Him. So after he delivers them in the Exodus, he reveals himself in chapters 19 through 40, and that's what we're studying together. Last week, we studied chapter 19, and today we're going to jump ahead to chapter 33, and I know that for some of you type A people, the fact that we just skipped 12 chapters really bothers you, okay? But not to fear, because in the coming weeks, we're going to go back and we'll work through those too. It's just that there's something really important here in chapter 33 that I wanted to get to right away. 
So let me catch you up on what has happened leading up to chapter 33. Moses has gone up into the mountain of fire and smoke, and there God is giving to him the Ten Commandments while the people wait down below. Well, Moses stays up there a little longer than he'd planned, so the people get scared and they freak out. They're like, where's Moses? Did he leave us? I'm scared and alone and I feel vulnerable. And somebody else says, me too. And somebody else says, I know, let's make an idol. That will make us all feel safe. Yeah, that's a great idea. So they all take off their earrings and their nose rings and their watches and the gold caps off their teeth and their 20-inch rims off their chariots. And they, they melt them down. They melt them down and they make this golden calf. And then they all get naked and start worshiping it. Now, do you get this image? Moses is up on the mountain of fire and smoke with God getting the Ten Commandments. And all the people of Israel are down on their version of Franklin Street, standing on telephone poles naked and getting jiggy with it or walking it out or however you want to say it in front of an idol. Right? Well, needless to say, God is ticked. So Moses and God have a series of conversation where Moses pleads with God not to destroy the people. And God finally, at the end of chapter 32, says, okay, okay. But he then says what you saw in the chapter that we just read. God says, look, take the people on into the land that I promised them. I'll do what I promised. I will vanquish all of their enemies. I'll make them prosperous. I'll multiply their crops. I'll take care of them. But my presence is not going to go with them because I'm probably end up killing them. Moses' response is very important. He says, look at this. You see this? God, if your presence is not going to go with us, We don't want to go. Now, did you catch that? God offered to defeat all their enemies, to bless their crops, just not go with them. And Moses said, without your presence, we don't want to go. Here's my question for you today. What if God promised all the blessings of life to you? A good marriage, good health, good family. Even take you to heaven when you died. But he himself, his presence, would not go with you on the way. Would that be okay with you? You see, Moses says no because, here's your first thing, presence is the point of Christianity. Right? For you people that write stuff, I love type A people because they're just like, tell me what to write down. Okay, that's what you write down, okay? Presence is the point of Christianity. The whole purpose of the Exodus was that Israel might know God, okay? All right, I mean, let me just say this until we get sick of saying it. It wasn't just let my people go, but let my people go that they might worship me. God was not just delivering Israel as an act of political compassion. He was delivering them that they might know him. And by know, I don't mean know about. Or know what he wants. But know. Like you would know a friend. Look back in verse 11. We skipped over it when we were reading it. But it said that God spoke to Moses like a man speaks to his friend. That's the goal. Personal, intimate relationship with God. That is one thing, by the way, that makes the Bible's approach to God so vastly different from that of other religions. Other religions major on what God wants you to do. Rules you need to keep. Rituals you need to observe. But the Bible focuses on knowing before doing. And any doing comes naturally out of knowing. 
Go back to Genesis in the Garden of Eden. Right, and you see a phrase like this, in the cool of the evening, God would come down to walk with them. Which I always thought was a really intriguing phrase. Like after work, God comes down for a stroll. Does God keep office hours during the day? Right, and what is it about the cool that he likes? Could he not just create some shade whenever he wanted? I'm not sure, honestly, but, but what is clear is that they knew him. And they walked with him. He didn't just leave them a list of rules and tell them to get on with their lives. They enjoyed each other. They took walks in the cool of the evening and, and probably smoked some non-carcinogenic cigars together. They just had a good time. Right? In Exodus, when God leads them out of slavery, He joins them by a pillar of cloud. He didn't just give them instructions about where to go and what to do. He joined them. Eventually, that cloud set down in a tabernacle right in the middle of the people. And soon that tabernacle became a more permanent temple. You fast forward to the New Testament when Jesus was born on earth. One of the angels said that, that the name, or one of the names that they were to call him was Emmanuel, which meant literally God with us. In fact, when Jesus grew up, he did one of the most surprising things that anybody could imagine. He looked at the temple one day and he said, hey, you tear that temple down and I'll raise it up in three days. And everybody looked back at him and thought, what's wrong with you? You crazy? It took 40 years. Like uh, 200 men working day and night for 40 years to build that temple. How are you going to rebuild it in three days? And the author notes it. He says, he just didn't realize that he wasn't talking about that temple. He was talking about himself, the temple of his own body. What is staggering about that is what he just claimed was that he was the temple. Every once in a while, you get a smart aleck professor who would be like, you know, Jesus didn't really ever claim to be God. And you're like, uh, duh, yes, he did. When he claimed to be the temple, that's what he was claiming, is that he was himself the house of God. Right? Well, fast forward to the end of the New Testament, Jesus leaves, and the disciples are upset because he's leaving, which is understandable. But he says not to worry, because when he leaves, he'll send the Holy Spirit to possess their souls, which would be better. This is a pretty awesome thought. Which would be better than if he actually stayed on earth. And so the Holy Spirit came and filled the church and now lives in the heart of every true believer. Adam and Eve said, God walks with us. When people saw the temple, they said, God in the midst of us. Emmanuel meant God with us. The Holy Spirit was God in us. Having the presence of God in our lives has always been the point. What we lost when we were cast out of the Garden of Eden was God's presence. And so that's what our hearts have always yearned for. To know God again. To be reunited to Him. To have Him again be our Father and our friend. You may not have known it, but that is what you have always yearned for. What you have searched for in everything that you have searched after. What you've been looking for is that presence of God that you lost in your first parents back in the Garden of Eden. The human condition is one of, of nakedness. This is a concept that I've taught our church on often, so, but let me catch the rest of you up on this. What was the first result of man's sin? Right, what was the first result of him having sin? He felt what? Start, that's right. Start, yeah, I was going to say, you got it. Naked. He felt naked. Now, here, 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 here's the question. What, was man and woman, were they naked before they sinned? Yes. They just didn't have a sense of their nakedness. Why? Why were they naked and why didn't it bother them? Well, you know, the, um, uh, the early church, 
guy in the early church, um, which, by the way, I did my doctoral dissertation, dissertation in the early church. So anytime I reference the early church, it makes me feel really smart, right? So if when I say early church, if you would all go, ooh, or whatever, that would be really helpful, okay? So a guy in the early church, that's right, an early church said this. He said the reason that Adam and Eve were not bothered by their nakedness before the fall was because they were clothed in a sense of the love and the acceptance of God. And then having been stripped of the love and the acceptance and the presence of God, they suddenly were aware of their nakedness and they felt ashamed. The human condition is one of nakedness. Right, well, what do you do when you're naked? Right? I mean, what would you do if you suddenly felt naked? And you have a problem with sleepwalking and you suddenly wake up at a super Walmart at 3.30 in the morning and you're butt naked. Right? What do you do? Right? You're not like, well, I'm here. I might as well get some stuff we need for the... No, I mean, you know... You wake up at 3.30 a.m. and you're naked. And you're like, oh, you got to cover yourself. Right? I mean, if you're normal. <laughs> if not, you got issues. But that's what Adam and Eve did is they covered themselves. And that's what mankind does is they're on a quest to cover something that they lost, not realizing that what they lost was the sense of the presence of God. That's what the whole thing is about. God's presence restored to your life. The presence of God in our lives, verse 16 was what was supposed to make us distinct. Verse 16, Moses said, what sets us apart? It's not simply that we, or what we believe. It's not simply how we live. What sets us apart is the fact that the presence of God is with us. So before I move on from this, let me just ask you a question. Is that what you are known for? Is that what makes you distinct? Is that the main dimension of Christianity in your life? When I ask you about being a Christian, you immediately start telling me about your personal knowledge of and communion with God. Usually you ask people about their Christianity or their religion and they start telling you about what they believe and what they do and who they vote for and what they won't drink and words they won't say. But that is not the heart of Christianity. Right? It's not a list of things that you just obey and you do. Here's another thing I've tried to teach our church. You know, it goes back to a, something, or an analogy I used from when I was in college. Um, my, one of the year that we moved out off campus and, and several of uh, my friends and I lived together, one of the guys had a dog. First time, you know, we couldn't have it in the dorm, so he brought his dog in. Problem is, his dog was disabled. Um, both of his back legs had been broken in a car accident, and so the dog couldn't, he just kind of moped around. It was a black Labrador retriever, beautiful dog, but, you know, disabled, and so... Um, he just kind of laid there, right? And so he just laid there, and, and basically he was like a doormat, you know, that you just sort of like stepped over, and you pat him on the head say, hi, Max, and you go off to class. Right? I remember stepping over this, this doormat and looking at this dog one time and thinking, based on how I had understood Christianity for most of my life, that dog would make a fine Christian, right? I mean, he didn't drink. He didn't smoke. I never heard him curse, right? We had him neutered, so that wasn't a problem anymore, right? Right? I mean, but that's not what it means to be a believer, right? I mean, is that really what Jesus died to create? Is a, is a big group of obedient, disabled, neutered dogs? No, his people were to be people who love him passionately with all their heart and soul. You are supposed to love and feel for God what you have never felt for another human being. We were to be people of presence. 
And let me tell you, by the way, when you really need to know this, when you are in pain, when you are in pain, what you need are not just doctrines about how God is working at all for good, which is very important, but what you need when you are in pain is the touch of a Savior who has been through pain, who knows what it's like to lose a child, to be betrayed by a friend, to be alienated from a father, or to be mistreated by a spouse. There are times in my life when I scream out for answers. And what I simply get is the presence of God, and it is enough. And some of you, when you go through pain, you are not going to be prepared. Because though you know a lot about the Bible, you have no concept of what it means for God to be near. So here's my next question. What exactly is the presence of God? Right? Presence is the point. What exactly is that? You know, because for many people to say, well, God is with us simply means they're successful. Right? I mean, you know, God be with you in our culture means, I hope things work out. I heard a guy the other night talking about the phrase, Godspeed. What does that mean? You know, somebody's leaving and you say, Godspeed? How fast is that? You know? The captain of your airplane comes on and says, we've reached a comfortable cruising altitude of 36,000 feet and are now traveling at Godspeed. You know, and you're like, what? You look out the window and you see, you know, Jesus, you know, <laughs> you're waving at you. <laughs> That's not what the presence of God means. Right? Because in this chapter, God says, I'll give you success. I'll give you Godspeed. I'll just not go with you. And some of you really need to hear this. It's possible to be very blessed and to live completely apart from the presence of God. And well, many people think that presence means some strange, weird feeling that you get. You know, I have friends in churches who think God was in the service because they got goosebumps or because people shouted and rolled around. And it's always strange because it always seems to correspond to when the speaker was really yelling, right, or when the music hit a crescendo. Our Hispanic, camp, uh, Hispanic pastor, Rodell, told us that in the churches he grew up in, the louder the music, the more it was assumed that God was there. Right? Is that it? Well, this chapter actually shows you exactly what the presence of God is. At the end of the chapter 33, Moses says to God, show me your glory. And God says, okay, I'll pass right in front of you. Here's how chapter 34 describes that moment. Look at this, Exodus 34, 5, flip, flip over a page. 34, 5, the Lord descended in the cloud and he stood with Moses there. That's presence. And proclaimed, you see that? Proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed right before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Don't miss this. How did God show himself to Moses? He proclaimed his name and described himself. What is the presence of God? It is a first hand heart knowledge of the name of god his character his size the immensity of his love now let me be clear i am talking about much more than just understanding the doctrines of god i'm talking about knowing them intimately i'm talking about feeling them got in d martin lloyd jones had a great illustration of this he says it's like my daughter four years old it's like my daughter who knows at any given point that I'm her daddy, that I'm committed to her, that I care for her, that I love her, 
But as I'm walking down the street with her holding her hand, suddenly I get overcome with just a sense of how cute she is and how much I love her. If you're a parent, you know what this is like. And I pick her up, right, and I spin her around and I throw her up in the air and I catch her, you know, and then I, I kiss her all over her face and her neck and I'm like, sweetheart, I just love you. I just love being your daddy. Right? At that moment, she may have known before that I cared about her, but suddenly in that moment she senses that love and experiences it in a completely different way. You see, the presence of God is a felt sense of His immense love, His greatness, His holiness, His power. It's all of a sudden you getting a sense of how much bigger God's grace is than your sin. Or you stand before a problem that overwhelms you, but suddenly get a sense of how much bigger God is. Or self-doubt consumes you and whispers in your ear that you're a failure. But then God whispers into your ear more loudly, you are my child and I have made you mine in Christ. It's a sudden sense, a felt experience of these truths. You see, some at churches like ours often become classrooms where you learn facts about God as if that were the point. I mean, imagine you came up to me and said, tell me about your wife. I'm like, well, you know, Veronica Marie McPeters was born on November 21st, 1977. The doctor who delivered her was named Fred. Her first boyfriend was named Alfonso. In college, she majored in speech therapy. She has a crescent-shaped scar behind her left ear ear lobe, and she says the word pants very weird, which is true, all right? Now, you may be impressed with how much I know about her, but that is totally different than if you say, tell me about your wife. And I'll tell you about how much I enjoy getting home from work and just being around her. How she seems to know just what to say when I'm down. How I know that she loves me and how I experience that and how how I know what she really loves. And I know what turns her on and I know what she, she likes. How I know, right, what her presence is like. That's a knowledge that includes facts but goes far beyond them. That's the kind of knowledge that says, I'm really tired. And I don't want to go, I just want to go home and be with my best friend. Churches like ours often become classrooms where we learn about God rather than sanctuaries where we experience and commune with God. Now I want to be really careful here not to drive too much of a wedge between knowing the Bible and knowing God. Because the only way to know God is to know the Bible and anyone who drives a wedge between those two is a fool. But I do want to point out that for many of us, We worship our knowledge of the Bible and not the God of the Bible. We want to be full of God facts so that we can be puffed up with pride at how much we know, but we don't really crave or desire to know God at all. Some of you in here who know the Bible the best have no real desire to be in it on a daily basis. You do it from discipline. But when you're doing it, you're going through it to check it off and you can't wait to quit and go about your day. It's why many of you have so much unconquered sin in your life. You struggle with lust, materialism, pornography. It's also why people don't like to be around you when you talk about God. Because you're always trying to show everybody how smart and spiritual you are. You have theological B.O. Your spirit stinks. And that's because what you're in love with is not God, but your own pride. 
So am I saying quit learning the Bible? Of course not. Just make sure that your learning is a means to an end, and that end is God and not the pride of knowledge. But can I say this for a minute? This is what I love about charismatic churches. If you're not familiar with what a charismatic church is, it's just a church that's just, you know, they're just all over the place. They're completely alive. Charismatics know that the presence of God is the point, and they yearn for it. I've been in a charismatic church when somebody leaned over to me and said, He's here. You know, you, you come into our churches and you lean over and you say that to somebody and they're like, who's here? Roy Williams, did he come in? We don't even know who you're talking about. That's what I love about charismatics. Right? What I don't love about them is that many of them often try and force the presence of God or think they can do something that'll just make him show up. You know, like if we jump up and down long enough, then God has to come. If we keep playing this chord over and over and over and over again and singing this phrase over again, then God just has to appear. And I, I stood in those churches, no joke, sometimes for like an hour singing one phrase over and over. And I'm like, does God really like E-flat? You know, if we say he is here enough, does he suddenly be like, okay, quit ringing the doorbell, I'm coming. You know, or, or, or so you charismatics won't think I'm picking on you too much. My home church used to put revival on the calendar twice a year. And I remember even as a, as a kid thinking, really? We can just schedule God to show up here during this week and I'll be revived? I mean, couldn't we just get him to come sooner? Yeah, I mean, how do, you, how do we know? You can't schedule the presence of God. The other thing I don't like about a lot of charismatics is that they usually define the presence of God as a weird, mystical experience and not a fresh understanding of his name like you see here. But at least they get it, that there's supposed to be something experiential in all of this. In our tradition, if God would have said what he said to Moses, right, we'd have probably said, okay, so you'll bless us, and you'll make us successful, and you'll grow us, and you'll conquer our enemies, but your presence is not going to go with us? Okay. Could you at least give us like a book that we could obsess about and argue over while you're gone? You know? Guys, he is here. And if he's not, he needs to be. That is the point of the whole thing. I love the Bible. You know that. I love teaching it. I love knowing it. But I don't want us to be a place of knowledge. I want us to be a place of presence. And to be a place of presence, we have to have our minds full of the Word of God and our hearts full of the Spirit of God. Because if you have the Spirit without the Word, you blow up. And you got the Word without the Spirit, you dry up. But you get the Word and the Spirit together and you grow up. Right? It's why, listen, it's why I've told you that I want the head of a Reformed Baptist, the heart of a Pentecostal. And then while we're at it, throw in the feet of a Jehovah's Witness just for fun, okay? Presence is an, an immediate, first-hand heart sense of the size, the character, and the attributes of God. I want us to be a place of presence. I want people who are overwhelmed by a sense of guilt or their problem to suddenly come in and be more overwhelmed by a sense of the size of God's grace and how much bigger He is than all of the universe. Let me give you a few examples of this so you don't think I'm just completely out to lunch. Jonathan Edwards, right, who's one of my favorite theologians. Not a loon, okay, by any means. 
one of the greatest theological minds of the last 400 years, says this, quote, Sometimes only mentioning the name of Christ or an attribute of God will cause my heart to burn within me. Suddenly God, suddenly God appears glorious to me. When I enjoy this sweetness, it seems to carry me outside of myself. I cannot bring myself even to take my eyes from this glorious object. Y'all, that is beyond doctrine. That is a sense of the majesty and the beauty of God. Right? This could also happen, by the way, to whole groups of people. You see it in the Bible. In Joshua, a couple books after Exodus, a few books after Exodus, it says that the people of the land were given a sense, the people of Canaan were given a sense of God's presence, so that when Israel went out to battle, their hearts had already melted with fear. Guys, what happens when the presence of God goes out into Raleigh-Durham or on the campus of Chapel Hill or Duke or State and suddenly their hearts melt with fear? Do you realize how much easier that makes our outreach efforts? It's the presence of God. Right? Or Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, talking about the first church, when the first church was filled with the Holy Spirit, it says, get this, everybody, and by everybody it means the community, was filled with a sense of awe. And God added to their number daily those that were being saved. It's the presence of God in the community that suddenly caused things to happen in the community that went way beyond their outreach efforts. Acts chapter 4. The church was again filled with the Spirit of God so much that it says they went out and they testified boldly to Jesus so boldly that people were astonished at how bold they were. When is the last time that you were astonished by your boldness. What we have are people who are educated, but not bold, because they have knowledge and not presence. 1 Corinthians 14, one of my favorites. An unbeliever comes into your church, Paul says, and the secrets of his heart are suddenly laid bare, and he falls down in his face and worships God and says, what a great preacher. Is that what it says? He says, God is among you. You see what I'm getting at? This is my desire for this church, not that we be a place of doctrine, but that we be a place of presence. Sometimes I feel like what we're more like is almost, you know the story in the Old Testament of Elijah where he builds the altar and then prays for the fire to come? Sometimes I feel like what we do is we just build the altar and then we get excited because there's a lot of people standing around the altar and because the altar is pretty, but we don't care whether or not God ever comes and the fire ever pours onto it. I don't want a a wet, empty altar. I want one burning with fire. See? The presence of God. So that leads us to our last question, and that is how do we get the presence of God? How do we get the presence of God? In chapter 33, I see three elements. I'm going to give it to you really quickly. Here's your first one. It's in verse verse 7. It talks about Moses making a tabernacle. You see that? And then verse 11, it says that Joshua stayed in it. God, Moses made this tabernacle outside of the camp, and he says, okay, anybody who wants to go meet with God, just go out there. And then, verse 11, it says that Joshua loved it so much that even when Moses left, Joshua stayed. What do you see in that? Here's what I see. Earnest desire. Anybody who wanted to meet God could go out to this tent, and Joshua wanted to know God so bad he wouldn't leave it. So again, if you write stuff down, here's your first thing I put in answer to that question. How do we get the presence of God? One, earnest continual prayer. Now let me just tell you, this goes against everything that we are as Americans. Because if there's one thing that we have perfected, it is the art of the instant world. Right? 
Everything is instant. Everything is high speed. Starbucks has further prostituted its coffee soul by introducing its new instant line of coffee. Have you picked that up yet? It's actually pretty good. I'm not going to lie to you, all right? But coffee connoisseurs everywhere sit in shocked horror because you can't do instant coffee, right? Or one of my favorite movie scenes, that scene in Matrix where, you know, they upload all the information by sticking the needle in his head. And you're like, how awesome would that be? Like your friend asks you to go out and you're like, oh, I can't. I got to study for a math test. Oh, wait a minute. You know, okay, ready. Awesome, you know. Maybe one day it's coming, I don't know, but you know, you know that that's not how any real relationship work works. Relationships take time. And if you're going to be filled with the presence of God, it's going to take time. I'll tell you this, one of the best decisions I ever made in college was one I made accidentally. All right? In fact, most of the great decisions in my life I've made accidentally and then realized how great they were after I made them. Right? I made a decision my junior year of college that I wasn't going to do any studying on Sunday. I had my reasons for that. But what that caused me to do my junior and senior year is I would spend the whole afternoon just, I'd take a book, I'd take my Bible, I'd take something to write with, and I would go out for three, four, sometimes five hours at a time and just sit in the presence of God. I still remember with such fond sweetness those times where God just soaked through me during those times. It's even now. I mean, I do my quiet time in the morning, whatever that means, quiet time, slow, like something you do for a four-year-old. You know, go do your quiet time. I mean, but I do that. But I'm telling you, there are times that I just have to take hours, sometimes a day, sometimes a half day, and just sit in the presence of God. Some of you need to turn off your television. Not because it's just wicked and immoral, which half the time it is, but but because it's simply filling you up with so much distraction that you just don't ever take time for the presence of God to soak into your soul. You are too distracted to actually know God. One of my favorite quotes, a guy named Brother Lawrence, 16th century. He became a monk. He was a really interesting guy. He, um, he lived this pretty promiscuous life, and he felt so bad about it that he decided to check himself into a monastery where he would renounce all pleasure, basically punish himself for the rest of his life. He became a dishwasher, right? So that he thought if he never experienced pleasure again, that that would somehow pay for his sins. Right? He left, he wrote a book while he was in there because what he discovered was the greatest and sweetest pleasure that came from just knowing God. And while I wouldn't recommend a bunch of stuff that monks write to you, this one I, I would. It was called The Practice of the Presence of God. And in there he made this statement. Again, this is pretty amazing, 16th century. The problem, he said, is that we take so little take in so little during our routine two-minute devotions. We're blind to God's purposes because we unplug the wire that feeds the current of His grace into our lives. On the other hand, he says, when God comes upon a soul marinated with living faith, He pours out His grace and favors by the bucketful. They can then flow through the person's life like a river that has been kept from its normal course, but is suddenly let loose by open floodgates to happily soak everything in its path. You see, that earnest, continual prayer, build a tabernacle, metaphorically speaking, and go and stay in it. And this means, by the way, it means that what you seek more than anything when you pray is you seek more of God. It is apparent that whatever was going on in Joshua's life, whatever he needed help with, what he most wanted was to know a little bit more of God. 
When you pray, what are you most praying for? You asking God to fix a problem? You asking God to give you something? These things are great, but what do you want more? Those things or more of God? Some of you are in pain and you are praying for God to fix the situation. But what if one of God's purposes in your pain was to allow you a chance to know Him more? And what if you spend so much time bitter and angry at Him and everybody else that you think wronged you that you miss out on what was supposed to be some of God's sweetest work in your life? Several years ago, I remember reading about this Mesopotamian tribe who made a world-famous pottery. This is like a couple thousand years ago. Not when I read it, but when they did it, all right? What they would do is anybody can make pottery, but after they made their pottery, after it was beautifully shaped and painted, the one last step that they did that nobody else did is they took this perfect pot and they dropped it on a marble slab and they shattered it in 300 pieces. And then they would take melted gold and they would put it back together so that the gold now ran between the cracks and was now held together by this gold in its midst. And the value of that broken pot became so much more because it had been broken and filled with something that it did not have. What if God's purpose in your pain was to break you so that He could pour more of His presence into those wounded spots of your life, but you never get it because you spend so much time yelling at God about what He needs to do and so much time angry at everybody who has wronged you. The presence of God, see, has to be desired. By the way, the presence of God will come into our church when we earnestly pray for it. You know, Acts 2 that I mentioned with this movement of God, a little overlooked detail in Acts 2 a lot is that the early disciples, if you, if you do your chart out about what's happening, prayed for 10 straight days from the time Jesus left to the time the Holy Spirit came. 10 days. Peter stands up after that and preaches for 10 minutes. Acts 2. And 3,000 people get saved. Now we pray for 10 minutes. I preach for 10 days and 3 people get saved. See, that's how you just move the zeros around. You want the presence of God, it comes as a church when we earnestly seek it and we pray. New York City, 1857. One of the most remarkable stories I've read. A um, guy named Jeremiah Lanfear was given the responsibility to be the outreach pastor for downtown Manhattan. How would you like that job? Right? So this guy goes and he drives a bunch of outreach efforts and they all fell miserably. He tried everything. Everything fell flat. He said, you know what? We're just going to pray. And everybody in his church told him, that's crazy. Just, he said, that's it. He said, at noon on Wednesday, we're going to have an hour where we pray. That's all. No preaching, no singing, no slideshow, nothing. Just prayer. First day, six people showed up. Next Wednesday, 20 people showed up. Third Wednesday, 40 people showed up. And somebody said, you know, we need to do this every day. And soon that prayer meeting started to meet every day at noon. Two months later, the whole auditorium filled with hundreds of people praying, calling out on God's name. So they started other prayer meetings at noon around the city. Soon the entire downtown area, every theater, every church was filled with men and women praying. Reporters estimated up to 10,000 people praying every day in lower Manhattan. Churches began to have evening services and people started coming and receiving Christ. In a nine-month period, 50,000 New York City residents came to Christ in nine months at a time when the population of the city was only 800,000. 
That would be like 100,000 people coming to Christ in Raleigh-Durham in the next nine months. That is what I want for Raleigh-Durham. And is what I want for UNC Chapel Hill. And I am telling you, it will not come except where God's people pray earnestly for it. You see, God showed me something when He called me into ministry. God called me into ministry when I was a college student. And I've shared, again, some of this. But it's the closest thing to a move of God that I have ever personally been a part of. I mean, what we're experiencing here is great. God is moving. But, but just the way that God began to pour Himself out on that campus... We did two things. We're like, you know what? We're just going to pray. Sunday night, we're going to pray, and we're not going to set a time limit out. We're just going to pray until we feel like God hears us. And then Monday night, we're going to do this, like, preaching Bible study. And it's not going to be fancy. We're not going to have a lot of, you know, like, just, it's not like we're going to have great music. We're, no, no lights, nothing. Just somebody sharing the word. And that prayer meeting started with about four people, and that Bible study started with about four people. And we prayed, and all of a sudden, God showed up on our campus. And I will never, never, ever get over what happened. I remember as God began to move and that Bible study grew to several hundred. I remember people knocking on my door at 3.30 in the morning asking me if I could show them how they could find Christ. It comes when you pray. It will happen at UNC Chapel Hill and Duke when you pray like that. And I almost want to look at you and say, some of you when I tell those kind of stories, you're like, yep, that could happen back in 1850, but not today. Shame on you. For thinking that God changes. People are no less dead today than they were back then. Princess Bride, no such thing as nearly dead. Right? It's always a miracle when God raises somebody from the dead. God can do it. The hesitation is not in us or in Him. The hesitation is in us. And I feel like in many ways we've kind of gotten away from that as a church. Our small groups have to be places where people pray. But I'll tell you this, we also need times as a body where we pray together. we got to do that. and We're not doing it enough, but we need to change that. The greatest, listen to me, the greatest gift that we can give to our community, the greatest gift you can ever give to your children, the greatest gift you can give to anybody is your intimacy with God. When Moses came off that mountain, his face was shining and they knew he had been with God. When our lives are saturated with the presence of God, people look at us and they know he exists because they sense his presence in our lives. Earnest, continual prayer. Let me just mention the other two. I won't go into them deeply because we've got to close. But number two, just jot this down real quick. Stripping ourselves of forbidden things. You see this in verse 5 real quick. It says that when they, God appeared to them, they stripped off their ornaments. And you're like, what is that about? That you took off the earrings? Does God not like things that are pierced? Right? No, that's not what it is. The point is, that was what they used to worship idols. And God says, if I'm going to come among you, you're going to get rid of those things that displease me. Let me just make this point really quick. Listen, it always blows my mind. This ought to be obvious, but for whatever reason it is not. It always blows my mind when somebody comes to me and they talk about wanting God in their life, but they are doing things that they know displease Him. As if you could have God and have Him just keep His mouth shut about that stuff. You cannot have God and hang on to your sin. That ought to be obvious, but I just don't know why it is not, but it's not. We have girls in this church who want God to be a part of their lives and their future, but you're dating somebody that you know you shouldn't date, and you think that God's just going to keep His mouth shut. Get real. Seriously. 
We got people who want God to be a part of their families, but they are unfaithful and they are seeking divorce and they are seeking all kinds of things that are displeasing to God. And you think God just wants to keep his mouth shut. You cannot have God and hang on to sin. You must forsake those things that he has forbidden. Okay? Here's your last thing. Know Jesus. Let me show you where I get this. John 1. Let me flip over to the New Testament real quick. It's a really interesting quote. That John gives, chapter 1. The law was given through Moses, but grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. Nobody's ever seen God. The only God who's at the Father's side, He has made it known. John is referencing chapter 33 and 34. That's what he's talking about. Nobody's ever seen God, except for Jesus, because Jesus is God. And when we look at Him, we actually see the God that Moses couldn't see in Exodus 33 and 34. And just to prove it to you, I'm going to say that He's full of grace and truth. Grace and truth in Hebrew are the same words that get translated steadfast love and faithfulness. You write that, in, write that in English, it would be grace and truth. What he's saying is you want to know this presence of God, know Jesus. So we tell you, get in one of our small groups, read the Gospels, follow Him with all your heart. Galatians 3, 2, says that we will be filled with the Spirit of God, get this, when we believe the Gospel. What is it that fills you with the Spirit? believing the gospel people have these questions about how do you get filled by the spirit i mean what's it it look like in fact i have people every once in a while tell me right i mean this this happens they'll be like man you're just a great preacher jd imagine what would happen if you got filled with the spirit i'm like yeah you know and, and usually they mean well honestly they do but they think that I need some kind of second moment where all of a sudden something weird happens to me and then I have the Spirit. What is Galatians 3? How does it say you get the Spirit of God? Look at it. How do you get the Spirit of God? By believing the Gospel. You want more of the Spirit? Believe more of the Gospel. You want to be filled more with the presence of God? Be filled more with the mind of Christ. Believe the Gospel and that Spirit will rage through your body. See? Do you have the presence of God in your life? It all begins with a relationship with Jesus Christ. You see, we were alienated from God because of our sin. But Jesus Christ conquered our sin by dying for us. Paying the penalty for our sin and dying in our place. He offers us the way to God through the work He has done. But it must be received as a gift. You have to come to Jesus and admit there's no way you could save yourself. No way you could ever be good enough to earn His presence And you have to surrender fully to Him. There's only one way that you can know God, and that is by means of what He Himself has offered you in Christ. Listen, I know that I am the friend of God, not because I'm any better than you. I know His presence is in my life, not because I'm better than you, but simply because I have received what God has offered me in Christ, and you can receive it today. You want the presence of God? It starts with knowing and following Jesus because He is God to us. Receive Him, believe, and let His presence fill your life. Let me get us to all of our campuses, if you would. Let's bow our heads together. Let me begin here. If you know that you've never received the presence of God into your life, maybe you could pray a prayer like this. These are not magic words. Let's say something like, Lord Jesus... I want to receive your gift of salvation today. Say it to him. From your heart. Not just repeating words, but from your heart. Lord Jesus, I want to receive your gift of salvation today. I turn over the reins of my life completely. 
And I'm going to let you be in control. From this point forward. Father, for those many, I believe, who at our various campuses just right now were baptized in your presence because they put their trust in Jesus. Father, I pray that you would let them see that and sense it and come to know it in a way that they would hunger and thirst for it. God, make this church a place of presence, I pray in Jesus' name.